welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. So it is wine o'clock. Yeah. It's wine o'clock, guys. Yeah. It's wine o'clock. <laughs> yeah, it is wine o'clock for sure. Yeah. So normally we try to record on a day that one of us has as a off day because we don't have the same days of the week off. We both share Saturdays off, but I get Saturday, Sunday and you get Saturday, Monday. So we usually try to record on a day when at least one of us has the day off. So like (laughs) if the other one's maybe just not feeling quite so fresh, the other one has that energy. But you know, circumstances as they are. Tonight is Thursday night, and here we are recording. That's why it's wine o'clock. <laughs> it's so true. We both came to this recording with with our wine glasses in hand <laughs> because it's been that kind of a week. But as I just told you, Kelsey, before we pressed record, like, you know what? It is Thursday night. I've got a glass of wine in my hand, and I get to talk about romance novels with you. So, <laughs> And I get to talk about this book. That I really liked, and I'll tell you why I liked it later. I'm going to spoil it right now. I like this book a lot. You know what, though? That's the kind of positive energy that I need to hear. (laughs) So I can't wait to talk about the book either. But before we jump into the book, I, of course, have a question for you, Kelsey. So what is your favorite like art memory, a time that you saw art and it just stuck with you? Ooh, that's a tough one. Let me think about that. Um, okay, so my favorite art story is, so when I went to Paris with my family after college, we went to the Louvre, as one does when you're in Paris, and my family decided to start with the ancient sculptures, excellent. I don't really care that much about them. There was a bunch of works of art I wanted to see that were later in the museum, so I straight up ditched my family. and just went careening off into the Louvre all on my own. Brilliant. Yeah. So then I just wandered around and I saw the Renaissance paintings that I had studied in school because I really, I almost minored in art history. If I'd stayed another quarter in school, I would have actually had a minor in art history. So I was just walking around. But the biggest thing about the Louvre that I loved and that has stuck with me is when you're walking through the Louvre, there's certain halls where you have to look up. Because it's not just the pieces are on the wall right at eye level. The paintings go all the way through the ceiling. And it's amazing works of art. So when you look up, not only are the sides and what like, you know, you're looking for the Mona Lisa, but you're walking around a corridor and you're in this little hallway and all of a sudden you look up and the whole entire ceiling has beautiful works of art by unknown artists because it was a palace at one point. So makes sense. It looks like a palace. That is pretty awesome. It's just amazing how art like hits you in ways that you don't expect and it just does things to you when you turn a corner and all of a sudden you see something impressive it's just it it kind of takes the breath out of you huh it did and that was the thing i just remember turning a corner and i was in this weird little corner hallway like don't know where I am because the Louvre is very confusing. No, you never know where you are there. And (laughs) I just happened to look at like a top corner and I was like, oh, there's a little painting in the corner. And I just kind of let my eye wander around the room. And suddenly I was surrounded by artwork. And I didn't know who the artists were. I didn't recognize the paintings, but I was surrounded and everything had like guilt around it. But it all was so continuous and it was all just a part of the structure. And that to me was just breathtaking. So that's awesome. That's my art memory. But please tell me yours. You've also seen lots of art. I have. I have. So my mom's an artist and like 
I remember her dragging me to art exhibits when I was young and I just didn't care. Like one time she took me to a Monet exhibit that was in our city and I, you know, was probably eight and I whizzed through the whole thing in 30 minutes and four hours later, my mom emerged and I was so (laughs) miserable. (laughs) But as I got older, my first time that I was in Europe, I had some opportunities to go to places and look at art by myself. So I found out because one of my favorite podcasts was Steph. You missed in history class. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite episodes was about Madame de Pompadour, who was one of the mistresses of one of the French kings. I want to say it's a Louis, but you know what? All of a sudden, it is a Louis. I do not- it's a Louis. Okay. Okay, good. Because I don't remember. It's been a long time since I've listened to the episode. But there's a really incredibly beautiful portrait of her. There's lots of portraits of her, but one that I particularly liked and they talked about specifically in the episode that was in the, I think, Alte Pinokotect in Germany, which is in Munich, Mm -hmm. the old Pinokotect. And I'm probably saying that wrong because it's been so long since I've actually heard anybody say it. So sorry, German folks. We just talked to Evie last week. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I'm so sorry. So I went there to see her and I was so excited and I spent the whole day just like enjoying myself at the museum and I got tired at one point because, you know, when you're walking and staring at art all day, like you're standing a lot and it's it's exhausting on your body. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that I'd been to a museum alone and I was like, oh, I can go take a break. Like Mm -hmm. nobody cares what I'm doing. Nobody cares. It was such a freeing feeling. I loved it. Anyhow, so before I was like, okay, I obviously need a break. And before I went to go have lunch, I was like, I'll just check. I'll I'll scan this room real quick and then I'll go down. And it was just all like religious art. It was Madonna and child, Madonna and child, Madonna Mm -hmm. and child, Madonna and child. I was like, okay, literally like a sea of blue (laughs) Madonnas and childs. And I just like, I look across the room and I'm like, oh, you know, that one looks really nice. And so I walk across the room, I press the number into my like headphones and it starts talking to me and it says, Madonna and Child by Leonardo da Vinci. And I was like, (laughs) the reason why the greats are the greats is because you're literally drawn to them and you don't know why. What? You don't know know why. It was just this incredible like moment of, oh my gosh, like I don't know anything about art, but there's something that's just, it doesn't matter if you don't know anything, you just are drawn to it. Well, It's funny, when we were last in San Diego, we were at Balboa Park, and we went into like the paid museum of art, and then there's the small one that's free, and we walked into it. The Timken. And Mm -hmm. we were walking through the galleries, and it's very small, because it's free, and he looks across, he's he's like, is that what I think it is? And sure enough, there's a Rembrandt just sitting across the way, but it's so distinctly Rembrandt that you know that's him. And there's what? Like, there's eight portraits by Rembrandt that we actually have in existence anymore, But you can just like, you see it and you know. Your eye is instantly drawn to it. Not because you know what it is from there, but because it's like, wait a second. Let me stop and pause. So anyhow, that was a magical day at the museum for me. But I have to talk about Madame de Pompadour one more time because unfortunately, the museum was being renovated and the area where her portrait was, was closed. So I wasn't able to see her. And I was so sad. I had a beautiful, wonderful day and I had other things that were great about that day. But I was like really sad because I had come specifically into the city that day and to that museum to see her. So they had all these really cool things in the gift shop. But so I was sad that I didn't get to see her. And as I was checking out, the lady was like, well, you know, she's actually on display across the street, right? And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, that museum's open for 
for 30 more minutes. Like you can, your ticket here will get you in there. And I was like, oh my God, I have to go see her. So I ran across the street to the new Pinocotect or the new one. I ran Mm -hmm. across the street. There's the museum shutting down. There is nobody in this museum. I am running through the halls of this museum trying to find this painting all by myself. It was (laughs) incredible. And I'm like running past things. And all of a sudden, I'm in a room full of Van Goghs. And it's like just me. And I was just (laughs) like... I have to find Madame de Pompadour. I'll come back to you. Like, so I ran and I found her and I was like, you know, breathing hard and I was so happy. And they probably would have just let me stay in the museum a little longer. Like, I don't know. But I, it was, it was such a magical day. And it's really incredible how art can, can really affect you that way Mm -hmm. and can become these such cherished memories of these moments and these, these feelings. Yeah. And, and yeah, so that's my my favorite art memory. That's great. There's so much feelings that are brought on because of it. We were just in Barcelona. We went to the Picasso Museum. And it's not because it has his most famous works. But what I loved about it was it showed you Picasso's progression. Ooh. Like, they showed you the first one that kind of made him well-known in Spain. And it's an oil portrait. Full realism, you know? And it's beautiful. And it's super well done. And that's the one that got him noticed. Wow. And then he went on to do all these crazy things, but it was so wonderful to see those after studying them. That to me is just the best. It's like I've looked at this painting, I've studied it, I've analyzed it, I've written papers about it, and now I get to go stand in front of it. So I think we have a bit of a call to action this week, don't you think, Kelsey? This is a find out what you've got in your local area as far as museums and treat yourself to a solo day at a museum. Like just, yes. just go. Really do. Self-care. If you're in the San Francisco area, the Legion of Honor just has a, it just opened up recently, but they have an exhibit and it's on Tassat, who is like a early impressionist and his work really, at least for my visual eye, it reminds me a lot of Renoir. Mm. So he's a very early on impressionist and he's not as much talked about. His name is not with the Monets, the Manets, the Renoirs, but his work is equally as good. And anyway, he's currently at the Legion of Honor. So go check that out. So the reason that we're talking about art today is because it features pretty prominently in our book and in kind of a different way, right? Like, yes, I had this memory of our main character being an artist but not once does she pick up a pencil, a pen, a sketchbook, a brush. She even says that she has practiced her sketching and her painting, and she's fine, but that's not where her passion lays. Her passion lays in the art itself done by the masters. Yeah, she's a student of it all, not the physical side of it, but but more the intellectual side of it. And mm-hmm. so... We are so inspired by our book, and that's why we were talking about art. (laughs) Yes, it's great, though, because one of the main paintings that features in it, I remember studying in art history class because it is a very, it's an iconic work of later Renaissance. So we're heading back today to Pennywell Green for the fifth book by Julianne Long in the series called What I Did for a Duke. Yes. Before we get into the book, we want to talk about our little history facts, because we've talked a bit about Julianne Long. Yeah. Not that we don't love her. She's great. She's fantastic. Woohoo. And actually, real quick note, she had a book come out like a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago, called Angel in a Devil's Arms. I have finished it. Kelsey hasn't started it yet. It's on my list. Go buy her book. Such witty dialogue. Yes, because she's amazing and her work is great. 
Anyway, so we want to talk about, there's a couple paintings that are mentioned in this, which we've linked in the show notes. So if you're curious about what they actually look like, you could go see it because I found the paintings online and I've linked and well, Zoe's linked it because <laughs> she does the show notes. I just found the links. So there you go. So a couple works mentioned are Botticelli's Venus and Mars. So and then there's Veronese's Venus and Mars also. So it's comparing two different versions of Venus and Mars by the two those two iconic Italian painters. Mm-hmm. And then we also talk about Titian's Venus Urbino. So they don't actually specifically call it the Venus Urbino, but that's what the painting is known as because Titian does have other Venus paintings. This is specifically the Venus Urbino. So because Titian plays such a big part in this book, I have a little facts about him. Ooh, cool. So for those who were unaware, Titian was from Venice and was part of the Venetian school of Renaissance painting. Venice had its very own signature style during the Renaissance, so you can actually tell the difference between works that came out of Venice versus what came out of Florence or Rome um, or even Milan. Like Venice had its very own distinct style. So as a matter of professional and worldly success, Titian's position from about the time in the 1540s is actually regarded as equal only to that of Raphael, Michelangelo, and even Rubens. So very much like well-known and well-respected. He was one of the top painters of his day. And he actually died at a pretty old age. So they don't have accurate records of his birth year, but based on estimated birth years, you know, where they think he had, he was either in his mid 80s or even almost 100. And he died of a fever during like the plague era. So, you know, he had a very long and successful life and he did a lot of other things, but these were kind of just the main facts I wanted to give you. Very cool. I wanted to mention that they also mention an artist called Canaletto in this book, and they mention him only one time. And that same day that I went to the museum in Munich and saw uh, Madame de Pompadour, there was a special exhibit on Canaletto, and it was like, you know, $5 more on your ticket, and I decided to pay the $5. And holy crap. Canaletto is everything I also love about art. He does incredible things with light and Mm. just all of his photos have like really, really huge dynamics between the shadows and the light. And he just does beautiful work. And I just I walked in there and I was like, what? How did I get so lucky? Like, this is what I love. Every painting. I was really excited about everything I was seeing. I just I loved it. So if you haven't looked at Canaletto, take a look at Canaletto. And we're definitely going to be featuring all of these artists. Uh, within our Instagram this week. So if you want to see what it looks like, check us out on our Instagram, Tea and Strumpets. And again, those will be in the show notes as well. But we aren't here to only talk about visual art. We're here to talk about a pretty awesome book. Yes, literary art, as it were. As it were. So our main tropes today are revenge, heartbreak. Uh, They're allied in a common cause and there is a... Much older gentleman. <laughs> oh, yes. The age gap is large, but that's okay. We like him anyway. We do. Our main characters are Alexander Moncrief, the Duke of Falconbridge, and Genevieve Eversy. Oh, Genevieve. <laughs> yes. And she is Genevieve through the whole book because only her brothers are allowed to call her Jenny. 
<laughs> yes. So today we're actually going to begin our story with a different Eversee, Ian to be precise. He is currently out to make his third assignation with Lady Abigail, who was recently engaged to the Duke of Falconbridge. However, the Duke is not the most trusting sort, and he noticed Ian's horse the last few days sitting outside the house. So tonight, he's laid in wait for Ian. And unfortunately for Ian, the Duke makes himself known once they're naked beneath the sheets. <laughs> it's such a good scene. I'm sorry I'm giggling so much, but it's really good. <laughs> it is. So they haven't actually like started anything yet. So he's not interrupting that. He's literally just waited for Ian to like undress mm -hmm. and get in there. But he makes himself known with a pistol. Always fun. Yes. And he breaks his engagement to Abigail, sends Ian out the window without his clothes. Which there's a great piece of writing about him having to ungracefully climb out the window. It's just a brilliant little piece of writing and a great way to start a book. Oh, yes. And even the Duke was like, I really didn't need to see that. <laughs> it's so He's good. like, I'm not sure the satisfaction was actually worth the burning of my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely how he feels. Yes, but he also promises Ian that his punishment will fit the crime. So after we've got a full chapter of Ian, the book all of a sudden shifts gears and we meet Genevieve. Yes, and Genevieve is in love with her good friend, Lord Harry Osborne. She and Harry and their friend Millicent have been a trio for the past couple years, and society just knows them almost as one. But mm -hmm. she's certain that Harry and her have a special understanding, and they're currently on a walk together, and she's pretty certain he's about to propose to her. And she's ready to say yes. Mm -hmm. She wants to marry him. That's in her plans. It's going to be her and Harry, and Millicent's just going to be their, like, trusty sidekick all good. Except for suddenly Harry tells her that he wants to propose to Millicent. And she's very shocked and also extremely heartbroken because this is the man that she loves and was planning to marry. And now he's planning to marry that other girl who, yes, she's friends with, but they had a connection. Where was that connection with Millicent? Shouldn't she have known if he loved Millicent instead? And Harry doesn't just just tell her, I want to marry Millicent. He kind of rhapsodizes about Millicent's charms and isn't Millicent wonderful? And poor Genevieve is just like so, just so sideswiped. She did not see this coming mm -hmm. at all. No. So she starts to make her way back to the house in that haze of what just happened. I don't understand, but I am heartbroken. And on her way back, she comes across her sister, Livia, who is there to inform Genevieve that there is a special guest arriving to their house party that's happening. And there's a ball happening tonight. So, and they're in Sussex at the Eversea House in Penny Royal Green. That's where this whole book is pretty much going to take place. Meanwhile, while all of this is happening to Genevieve, Colin, our hero from book one, is hanging out with Ian at the Pig and Thistle, the tavern in Penny Royal Green, and Ian is recounting the story of his run-in with the Duke and his window escape and how he kind of expects that something bad is going to happen. So Colin tells him, you know, hey... The Duke really isn't a man to be trifled with. You should know that. Maybe you should get yourself a wife or something. And 
And <laughs> Colin's all about getting everyone a wife. Yeah, he, marriage really suits him. And as they finish up their conversation, Olivia and Genevieve come to fetch Ian and Colin because they need them to greet their new guest, the Duke of Falconbridge. Whoa. <laughs> so Alex, which is how I'm going to refer to him because that's how he refers to himself in the book. So Alex has come to Eversea House with revenge on his mind. Settling on Genevieve as the perfect target because, frankly, Olivia just isn't sending out signals that she would welcome any sort of male attention, so he's just not even going to try. But my favorite thing is, first, the Duke torments Ian. So Ian, on his way out the window, could only find one boot instead of both boots, and the Duke recovered the second boot and stuck it on Ian's bed. So then Ian's wandering around the house with this boot like, where the heck did this come from? Oh my god, he's over there. (laughs) It's pretty good. The Duke has a really good sense of humor slash revenge. He's really good at tormenting. He's really good at mind games is what's happening. That's the perfect word for it. He's good at tormenting and mind games. Absolutely. But yes, poor Ian is being tormented mercilessly this whole time. However, on this first visit, Mrs. Eversee tells Genevieve she must go for a stroll with the Duke. Genevieve's not interested. She just wants to be alone and understand what just happened to her. She's She needs to wallow. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you need a little bit of time after a blow like that. And her mother to just try to convince her, but unfortunately makes things worse, is she says, don't worry, Harry and Millicent are going as well. Ugh. (laughs) As well as Olivia, but... Besides the point. That's not helping anyone. (laughs) No. Right before the walk, Alex is caught off guard because Genevieve, in a very quiet voice, Genevieve's known as like the thinker. She's the quiet Eversee. She's the good Eversee. She doesn't run amok. She's very calm and collected. She kindly asks the Duke if he needs a walking stick. And her father, (laughs) Jacob, you know, laughs her, Genevieve, this man's in excellent health. But really what she's doing is pointing out that the Duke is almost 20 years older than she is. Yikes. Even though her mother's trying to basically set her up with him. Either her or Olivia. She doesn't care which one. A nice catch for either of her daughters is the Duke. So Mrs. Eversee isn't particularly concerned. She'd just like to have a Duke as a son-in-law for sure. So everyone goes for a walk. Genevieve is still wallowing in her heartbreak and trying to understand and really isn't up for this group outing, but she's there because her mother made her. And Alex is now trying to get her into conversation. He's trying to work his ducal magic. Try being the optimum word because Genevieve is still wallowing and kind of just giving him one word answers. And so Alex's first impression of her is like, is she a little dim in the head? Like, he thought that maybe she appeared to be clever, and so he doesn't really know what to think of her at first. Then he realizes she's just very composed, and there's a very different girl underneath the surface. Based on a couple comments he made and just her responses in return, he sets out to ruffle her feathers a bit and really gets freer with his language because he really wants to stir up this Genevieve that's hiding beneath the calm exterior. He even, like, is the one who brings up the word marriage, which normally he would never do in normal conversation, especially not with a young, eligible maiden. But 
her response is that, oh, yeah, he should marry Olivia. Olivia would be great, would make a great wife. Exactly. <laughs> Every time he's like, I'm going to get her interested by talking about marriage. And she's like, yes, marriage. Olivia really could use a husband. She's just such a nice person. She really deserves it. She deserves oh. a title. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But Genevieve starts to get under his skin a little bit because of this. And she's also proving herself to be clever as his earlier assessment started out because she comments on his murderous glances to Ian. And he just plays it off like, I don't know what you're talking about. But finally, he does get a reaction from her, like a true reaction from her. And I'm going to read a little bit of what he says to get the reaction because it's really funny. (laughs) Because he purposely said... Oh, I really enjoy whores. And she's like, whores? He's like, oh, horses. Those hooved beasts a man can race, rage upon, plow a field with, harness to a phaeton, and drive at deliciously reckless speeds. And one cannot do any of that with whores, she asked softly. His turn to drop his die. He clapped it shut again. (laughs) And he goes on to say, it's a frustrating truism, he allowed resignedly, but it's a rare whore who will consent to be harnessed to a plow. And with (laughs) awe, he saw her lose her battle with that smile. Something or someone had made the light go out of Genevieve Eversee, and what he'd been seeing, walking with and talking with up until that moment of that smile was a shell. Fascinating realization, and possibly very useful. Hoo-hoo! So he is very intrigued by who this Genevieve Eversee actually is. And by the end of the conversation, the Duke's enchanted. He hasn't acknowledged it, but that's really what's happening. Because he's drawn Mm -hmm. to her, not simply out of revenge, but now he's a little fascinated by her. And he's enchanted by her quick wit and her very calm exterior. And once she smiled and he saw that inner light come out of her, he was very intrigued by what had happened and why she was the shell of a person to him. And just like how Genevieve noticed him shooting murderous glances at Ian, Alex is also pretty observant and realizes by the end of the walk that Lord Harry Osborne is why the light has gone out of Genevieve. Later that evening at the ball that the Everseas are throwing for all their Sussex neighbors and anyone else important who wants to come from London... Alex again tries to get Genevieve to converse with him and let down her guard. He really wants to ingratiate himself with her. And she is not interested. He tries to talk about the paintings in the house because he found out that she's really into art. And he, once again, he says... I'm delighted to find so many fine paintings in your home. We didn't have an opportunity to discuss it today, but I find that art moves me. She examined him. I suspect it moves you in the opposite direction. He bit back a smile. (laughs) (laughs) But basically, you know, this has all been one day. Genevieve's whole life has changed within one day. The man who she was in love with, who she thought she was going to spend the rest of her life with, told her that he wasn't in love with her. And not only wasn't he in love with her, but he wanted to marry her best friend. And so she still hasn't had about five minutes to even, like, process any of that. No. Like... I feel for Genevieve here. Yeah. And suddenly this Duke is 
really trying to like ingratiate himself with her and just not leaving her alone. She just wants him to go away. Which is hilarious because the Duke is actually very intrigued by the chase and delighted. So she tries diplomatic ways to get him to leave her alone at this ball. And then eventually she just starts throwing random people in his way. She is in mid-conversation with him and literally snatches a girl she knows out of thin air, introduces them, and then walks away. And this is like... Kind of even more of an, a bold move because the Duke actually, and we haven't mentioned this yet, the Duke has a real bad reputation. He does. Not for being like mean or anything like that, but he has a very scandalous reputation and there's a rumor that he killed his wife. So most people are just generally scared of Duke's to begin with, and or intimidated by them at the very least. But he, of course, has this weird terrifying rumor about him and he's a little bit older too so all of these young debutantes have absolutely no idea what to do with him except Genevieve seems to be doing just fine (laughs) yes so not only does she swoop a girl out of thin air and throw her in a conversation with the duke she then swiftly rescues the girl when she was nearby and hears Alex basically tormenting the girl with his reputation And he's not denying it. He's just making the girl squirm because he's having fun with it because this is the reaction he gets from all the young debutantes. And frankly, he just doesn't care and doesn't want to try because he's not interested. Yeah. And he's very intrigued by Genevieve's kindness and her ability to rescue someone, even though she doesn't want to be in the situation herself. And so then she throws Olivia in his way. Which works for a while and... Alex really gets to see the difference between the two sisters because basically Olivia's just aloof and doesn't have a care in the world where Genevieve really is just a kind soul. So it's a very interesting revelation for him. But of course, by the end of the night, Alex does kind of weasel Genevieve into a place where she cannot refuse a waltz with him. And she is very unnerved by his scrutiny that he's been giving her all day and all night so far. She just wants to go to bed and nurse her broken heart, not socialize at this whole ball. And now she's worried about Harry proposing to Millicent at any point. So she's trying to keep them in eyesight so he doesn't propose without her knowing. But the Duke just keeps trying to talk to her and eventually they talk about art a bit he brings it up because he knows that's a big passion of hers and he brings it up in a way that is titillating for the senses because he talks about the Veronese painting where Venus is clothed but Mars is not and he's leaning down in a way that just says you know Venus has had a very good pleasuring Mm-hmm. And he says this to her. <laughs> and so she kind of stares up at him and is really shocked because she knows the painting. She knows all these paintings. And now she has a new idea of what this painting even meant. So they have their banter back and forth. And both of the parties have been starting to get under each other's skin. But at the end of the evening, they do part. And later that night from her window... Genevieve, who's having a hard time sleeping because she's had a really hard day, looks out her window and thinks she sees the Duke wandering the gardens after midnight. 
Or she thinks it's an ever-see ghost, which wouldn't surprise her in the slightest, which I just thought was funny based on our last book with the ghosts in the moors. Because <laughs> she's like, if I ran into an ever-see ghost, I wouldn't be surprised, but it's really not the time. Yes. So the next day, the men go out to practice cricket before it rains, and the women are going to watch them show off. <laughs> Basically. But the Duke, instead of showing off, immediately takes a seat by Genevieve. And she's still pretty unnerved by his avid pursuit of her. But aside from, like, running away from him, there's not much she can do. So this is where we see the shift from him chasing her and her just trying to brush him off. This is where we see that end. And we see some honesty start, as well as the seeds of a genuine friendship between the two of them. Absolutely. And this is also where we see Julianne Long do the thing that she does so well, which is she's established that there are some things that the characters don't know about each other. And then when you're not expecting it, flips it on its head and lays all the cards out on the table. Yes. So he reveals that he can see that she's heartbroken. And he even acknowledges that he's aware that Lord Harry Osborne has pretty much done the heartbreaking. So he asks if Harry has ever kissed her. And she replied, yes. And then he said, am I touching the part where he kissed, which was her hand? (laughs) And she's like, yes. She's not happy to admit it, but it's true. And then the Duke tells her what a real kiss should do, which is basically it should rattle your senses. It should leave you wanting more, even if you don't know what that more is. And she's very intrigued by this description of what a kiss could be. And that kind of perks her interest because she wonders what exactly that is. Because she keeps maintaining that the kiss on the hand was a very fine kiss. But on her end, she tells him that she knows there's a reason why he's here. And it's not to propose marriage to either her or Olivia. You go, girl. You call him out for and that. And she just, she <laughs> literally is like, what's your game? And he responds, Literally. this is verbatim what it says in the book. Game? I don't understand. What makes you feel there's a, she heaved a sigh that all but bent a furrow in the grass at their feet. Oh, enough, she said irritably. Very clever people often assume no one is as clever as they are, which isn't very clever of them when you think about it. Ah, oh, so good. So she's so straight good. up like, you've been sending Ian murderous glances. Mm-hmm. And I know that I know my brothers. I know my brothers are rapscallions. They do scandalous things. So what did Ian do to you? Because that's <sighs> obviously the reason you're here and trying to talk to me. And she even says, what was your game? To seduce me and leave me? He's like, mm, uh, no, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, that was his game. That was the punishment that was going to fit Ian's crime. Yes. So he is a little shocked by her astute observation and has to stifle a smile, though. And then, like, so now all of a sudden, again, the cards are all on the table. So it's like, as a reader, you're kind of like, all right, well, well, where's this book going to go now? And Julianne Long takes us there. And he tells her the whole thing, which happened with Ian and Lady Abigail. And Genevieve, while not surprised, is disappointed in Ian, to be sure, and agrees mm-hmm. that he's got something coming to him. Mm-hmm. She's not against revenge against Ian, and you know, as long as it doesn't harm Ian. However, she's not going to be his tool. She's She's too smart for that. That being said, now that everything's turned on its head, because now we're open and honest and we're not that far into the book, 
we get a new plan forms in which the Duke will help Genevieve show Harry Osborne that his feelings were really for her and not for Millicent. Because he's noticing during their conversation that Harry's been glancing their way and is very intrigued by what's happening between the two of them, especially when Genevieve laughs. Mm-hmm. And Genevieve's very thrilled by the prospect of getting Harry to propose to her instead, but she's also intrigued by the Duke and recognizes that he puts her out of her depth, which equal parts kind of scares her a bit, but also intrigues her because this is someone that she can talk to in a way that she's really never spoken to a peer before. And for his side, Genevieve will kind of play along with the Duke a little bit just to kind of leave Ian to wallow in uncertainty. So she's not going to really participate in and truly put Ian in a difficult place, but she is going to help him keep Ian on his toes. Absolutely. She is an Eversee after all, and not uh, against some mischief. <laughs> So that night, Genevieve goes down to get a book from the library after everyone's asleep, and she finds Alex in one of the salons and is drawn to him. They don't say anything. They just look at each other. Like seeing like. She doesn't know what to do. She's thinking she should go back up the stairs, but she takes a step towards him and then freaks out and runs back upstairs. And for the most part, like, and this is a very silent transaction, this moment of two people being drawn together like magnets, it's not something that's done with words. He even, in his inner dialogue, the Duke even says that he's afraid to say anything because he doesn't want to break the spell. He's going to let her make her decisions. And she's frightened by her own decisions and her own curiosity when it comes towards him. So she takes the step and then is like, nope, got to go. Yeah. But the next morning at breakfast, a giant bouquet of roses is delivered, and the house is full of floral arrangements for Olivia. And especially after a ball, Olivia usually gets a ton of floral arrangements. And Genevieve usually does get some flowers, too, after a ball. It's not like she's a pariah or anything. She's just no Olivia. But her flowers usually tend to be like the the wildflower sort or daisies or something wispy. And... You know, secretly, Genevieve actually really doesn't like that type of flower. And so this giant bouquet of roses are delivered to Genevieve, and it shocks everybody. And the note is signed from Mars. So (laughs) Harry takes notice of this, and he is not pleased. No, he is not. But Genevieve is so thrilled. She has deep down always wanted some dramatic flowers delivered to her. And so it really hits her profoundly. Yes. And of course, Ian, being Ian, demands to know who Mars is because he's a protective older brother. And she just responds with uh, the god of war, as I understand it. It's also a planet, a red one I'm given to understand. (laughs) And as she's reading the note, though, for the first time, signed from Mars... It says, my esteemed Venus, these reminded me of you. In my dreams, your lips are just this soft. Your devoted servant, Mars. Her breath was officially lost. Her eyes blurred. Instantly, she burned, burned with the scandalous pleasure and shock and hilarity of it. As usual, the Duke had done far too much and precisely the right thing. And that's really where we see this 
romance really flourishing is because this man who she wants nothing to do with, she's in love with Harry, he just keeps doing the right thing. And Genevieve is glowing after receiving these flowers, and Alex is enjoying seeing the glow of Genevieve. But this also has Ian very concerned, as an older brother is, and so he takes her aside and warns her from the Duke. And she says the Duke, he's fine. He just asks a lot of questions, like, does Ian have a will? (laughs) (laughs) Because Genevieve isn't ever see through and through, and she loves torturing her siblings. (laughs) Oh, she's so great. And Ian, of course, doesn't know Genevieve's in on it, but he also doesn't know that Genevieve knows everything that went on that night, which as a reader, it's so great to know, (laughs) to know what both sides know and don't know. Yes. They're great siblings. They really are. But the Duke is also enjoying tormenting Harry because he's trying to get a rise out of Harry. So he's purposely insinuating himself into situations where he's showing that he's has affection for Genevieve and is purposely not overtly like he goes to the library and he pulls a book of art Italian art out and this is by himself mm-hmm. just to say like just to genuinely look at it and kind of get a little bit of an idea of how to talk to Genevieve because this is a big passion of hers and Harry's like oh I've read that book with Genevieve because he walks in and You know, in the same library thing, he does drop Ian down a pig because he finds a book that he thinks is perfect. So he walks away from his pile of books and on top it says poisonous plants known to Sussex. (laughs) Oh, he's so good at torment. It's really great. So the Duke, he likes to gamble and everyone knows that and he plays heavy and he's not afraid to do large bets and he loves a game of five card loose. So now all of a sudden every night, After whatever activities are planned, all the men get together and they gamble. And on this particular night, Mrs. Eversee is not happy because she's not there to start a gaming hell. She's this is her respectable household and she doesn't want the neighbors to know how deep everyone's playing. But the ladies are embroidering in the parlor (laughs) and Genevieve is feeling restless. She's working on her sampler, but she's really not interested in her mother or her sister or Millicent just because she just feels like no one's seeing her. She's always tried to be calm. She's always tried to be rational, but there's more to her and it's been bubbling up and now it's coming to the surface and no one seems to understand that she is the real Genevieve. Her mother's willing to believe that the flower arrangement that was delivered to Genevieve was delivered by mistake because who would send Genevieve those types of flowers? And Genevieve's offended. Mm -hmm. As she should be. Like, why wouldn't her mother think that someone could deliver those types of flowers to her? Genevieve is like, I want much more than this provincial life. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So she retires early and goes to her room and she picks up a book to read just to distract her and does fall asleep in her chair. But because she's in the chair and not in the bed, she wakes up at some point after midnight and decides she needs a new book. And maybe she'll find a ghost (laughs) along the way. A ghost who looks like a very real Duke of Falconbridge. (laughs) I mean, if I saw a ghost that looked like the Duke of Falconbridge, I'd try to go find out more, too. (laughs) I mean, tall, dark hair, hazel eyes. Who wouldn't? (laughs) And so she finds the drunk Duke in the parlor. And she goes to leave him alone. But he asks her to stay. 
And when he asks her to stay, he reaches out and touches her. And that touch turns into a very heavy kiss. And it rattles both parties. Because she really has never been kissed before. And the Duke, he's out there to try and show her what a real kiss can be. But by the end of the kiss, he realizes that she's taken over. He's now hers. And so he comes away rattled and he kind of comes to his senses because he wants more, but at least realizes, no, wait, this is Genevieve. I can't do that right now. So he sets her away from him and is like, we got to stop right now. Yeah. And she kind of takes a breath, wakes up a little bit and is like, do you need me to get you a footman? Because you're pretty drunk. And he's like, nope, kissed myself sober. so she leaves him alone and then that's that so the following day they are invited by the duke to visit rosemont which is his estate which is quite nearby in sussex and harry and millicent and genevieve and the duke set off to have a picnic at rosemont so the duke has mentioned that there are some paintings that he'd like genevieve to take a look at and they start by touring the gallery and the duke shows genevieve the painting he's he had referenced, which is actually the portrait of Venus by Titian, who is her favorite artist. And seeing her face made everything just totally worth it for Alex. And he realizes that he is feeling things that he hasn't felt in a very long time. So afterwards, though, they're having a picnic in the garden and Harry and Millicent are looking at the swans and Genevieve and the Duke are by themselves. So they get to have a conversation. And he very boldly brings up the kiss from the night before. And of course, the Duke just tells her flat out that he thinks they should kiss again. And Genevieve is just not so sure. Because basically, she realizes that This kiss rattled her, and she's a little bit out of her depth. And so while the Duke is much older and much more knowledgeable, she isn't sure that continuing down this path is something that she can really handle. And so she's pretty wise in that way. But the Duke tells her he'll wait for her to come to decision, and she can always find him after midnight. So the young people leave Rosemont. But the Duke stays to see to business and they go about their day. They have dinner and Genevieve is wondering where the Duke is because he didn't come to dinner. And now the evening or activities are starting and she hasn't seen him. So maybe he decided to leave and she's not very thrilled by the prospect of him not coming back to Eversea House. However, then a bunch of carriages arrived with gentlemen who are looking to gamble that evening. So she says, phew. The Duke must have returned because all these guys would not have showed up if he wasn't. And so after midnight, she does look out her window and she sees the Duke on a bench in the garden. So she can't help herself. She goes to him. She cannot. And they definitely kiss again. And it starts to be more. There's a bit of some grinding going on between the clothes. And the Duke, he's not drunk this time. And he still stops them because he says he's done. They're either going to have sex or they're not. I mean, he puts it nicely. He says they're either going to make love or they're not. But it's her choice. But he's no longer a young buck. He wants the all or nothing. And he's being very honest about it. But now it's her decision to decide if that's what she wants. And although this sounds pretty harsh, it doesn't doesn't come off as a kind of a douchey ultimatum. It comes off as, as a really heartfelt thing of, listen, you know, we're too attracted to each other and 
either we go all the way or we don't, but we can't keep playing with fire like this. Exactly. And that's really what it is, is he sees it as fire and she doesn't quite understand. And he under he knows that. He knows that she obviously doesn't have any experience with that. And so he's saying, in my experience, it's either going to happen or it's not. And you need to be okay with that. So he's giving her the choice. He's actually giving her power in this moment because he's not taking advantage of her naivety and just kind of running away with the feelings. He knows that he has the experience in this department and in this situation. And so he is just drawing a line and saying, here's the deal. It's like this or it isn't. We can't play this game. Exactly. And then we skip to the next night because apparently the daytime didn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Eversey has banned gambling for that night because she is not running a gambling hell. (laughs) So everyone is in the parlor and Millicent starts a game of blind man's bluff. And it, of course, turns into a drinking game because that just makes the gentleman more interested. (laughs) And it is rousing good fun until Genevieve is caught by Harry, who fails to recognize her. Yikes. Which stings because Uh. this is the man, like he should just know her instantly. And the Duke sets out to prove a point by next becoming the blind man. And he catches Genevieve. And he touches her face, pretends not to know. But he's like, I think this is Genevieve Eversee. And she's definitely, like, it was a power play. It's a subtle one, but it was definitely a power play on his part. Harry and notices. Genevieve, <laughs> oh, Harry for sure notices. And Genevieve... She notices as well because he's really seeing her, but not just in this game, but he's seeing her in a way that no one else has ever seen her. Mm -hmm. And so she goes to find him after midnight and they see each other in the library and the kisses turn to more and he says they need to go to her room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do. do. (laughs) Yeah, they do. And we get our encounter number one because he wasn't playing when he said, we're going to do it if we're going to do it. Yes. And he's very gentlemanly, though. He starts by going down on her. So, you know, like (laughs) she had a good time before the actual thing started. And in between, they talk. And this is really important because she asks about the Duke's first wife. And why is the rumor that he poisoned her? And so he tells her that his wife died after eating oysters for the first time. And it was the worst time for him. He doesn't say it outright that this is the worst day of his life. But you can tell because he says there was nothing he could do. She slowly died. It was agonizing for both of them. And he said it hurt worse than losing his son. Uh. And Genevieve didn't even know that he'd had a son. And... The son had only been a few months old, and his son died shortly before his wife died. So in the span of a year, he lost not only his son, but his wife. And so even though he's got a hard exterior, life has kind of put him through the ringer a bit. And after that, we have our encounter number two, which is not quite as demanding, but that's because they're now connecting on a different level. There's more emotion tied into it, and there's more understanding of who the other is. And while this encounter happens, you know, the same night and the same scene as 
if technically the same chapter as the last one, there is a, a definite like different scene that happens in between with them having a conversation. So I feel I completely agree that this counts as encounter number two. Yes, I thought about it, but I thought there was a big break and it wasn't a continuation of the first one. Mm-hmm. It was it was a completely separate encounter yes. because now there's new revelations about each other. And it's yeah, it was very different than the first one. Yes. And so the Duke leaves her that night, but he's a bit shaken by the encounter. And I'm going to read this quote here because I think it's just very important. But here was a thing he feared. He wanted to talk to her every day. He wanted to make love to her every night. He wanted to know every curve and every angle of her body, every hollow, every freckle, every scar. He'd never known a more clawing hunger for a woman's body, and it shocked him. And he was clever enough to know it had only a little to do with her body. An incinerating, honest passion, the equal of his, was only the expression of who she truly was. Ah, so... So there's still a house party going on, and the next day they decide to go to the ruins, you know, the ruins that everyone has on their property because everyone's got ruins or a folly or something. So the Duke and Genevieve get separated (laughs) from the group, but she is having trouble keeping up with him. And finally, he stops her and lets her know what he's thinking. So he turns to her and says, we could marry. And... Genevieve's a little miffed because this is the second non-proposal she's received. (laughs) And like, that wasn't the plan. The plan was for him to help her get the man that she's in love with. And like, the Duke deserves to be loved. And they don't, they don't love each other, right? And the poor Duke, he, he never agrees with what Genevieve is kind of saying as far as their feelings for each other. And he is definitely hurt by her refusal. And she's trying to understand why, but she's also like notices his hurt and doesn't like the fact that he's hurt. And so she's Mm -hmm. really out to see him. And so she goes and search for him after midnight and she searches and she searches and she can't find him. She even went to his room and knocked on his door because she needs to talk to him because she didn't like the way they parted that afternoon. And she needs to talk to him and see him. And she goes to her room finally after giving up, after she's knocked on his door and there was no answer. But she she gets in the room, kind of looks around. She's like, no, I'm not I'm not done. I need to talk. I need to talk to him. I need to find him. So she opens the door to head out and she runs right into him. He's at the door. And apparently he watched her searching for him, <laughs> which I'm laughing at, but it's not actually funny because the reality is, is he didn't want to go to her. Like, he knew that there was more to it for him. But after watching her fruitlessly search for him for an hour, he had to go to her. And this time, it's it's hot, frustrated sex. Mm-hmm. Like, they do it standing up, and he never even gets undressed. Like, it's carnal, and there's a lot of emotion going on. And he tells her that this is the last time. And she responds with, if this is the last time, oughtn't there be a farewell? She sounded so desperate. She wanted a kiss, because she knew if she kissed him, she could make him stay. This was farewell, Genevieve. Couldn't you tell? So they part, and the Duke is in his room later, after a brief nap, when he hears a pounding on his door, which wakes him up. And he really only left Genevieve about an hour ago. And 
it's drunk Lord Harry, and drunk Lord Harry tells the Duke that the Duke ruined his plan. And his plan, first of all, was really dumb because he had no property to convince Genevieve's parents to allow him to marry her. So before he was going to stick his neck out there and ask her, he felt like he needed to know that she was in love with him because if she was in love with him, it would still be worth it. So he thought it would be a great idea to tell Genevieve he wanted to marry Millicent and then gauge Genevieve's reaction to see if Genevieve was in love with him. But Genevieve's reaction was so devoid of emotion, he didn't know what to do. And now Harry's been watching Genevieve interact with the Duke and it's just wreaking havoc on him. And the Duke is fucking furious because... This cowardly young lord has broken Genevieve's heart with his own idiocy. And so the Duke basically gives him a good dose of common sense and kind of like walks him through the idea of like how he would feel if he was in the situation. And Lord Harry is like, oh, my God, I have been the biggest fool in the world, which like great Harry, too little, too late. Yeah. Dumb Harry. Yeah. And so the Duke also realizes through his own telling off of Harry that he kind of did the same thing that Harry did in a way because Harry, you know, hatched this plan out of fear of Genevieve not loving him and Gen- and losing Genevieve. And the Duke's done the same thing because his tepid proposal was really not telling Genevieve the truth, which is that he loved her. So Harry leaves... And the Duke does some planning. The next night, the stakes are even higher in the parlor. The gambling has gotten so intense that some men were broken that night. Oof. Jacob Eversee won as much as he lost, but even he was shaken from that night for a while. It all comes down to a game where Harry is playing against the Duke. And Harry has bet everything he has, literally. He's down to his last penny He will be worthless if he loses. Oh, Harry. And the Duke puts Rosemont up in the pot. So Harry reveals his cards, and he's got a flush. It's not bad. Not great, but not bad. And the Duke folds, (sighs) admitting defeat. What? So now Harry not only has won this big pot, but now he's the owner of Rosemont. He has the deed to Rosemont. Which means he has property. Exactly. And while everyone's congratulating Harry on this epic win, the Duke slips away. And the next morning, Harry asks Genevieve to go to a stroll, which she's not really inclined to do because the last time she did that, he told her he was going to propose to Millicent. And also, she hasn't seen the Duke yet, but apparently he departed really early that morning. And she spent a couple hours the night before looking for him, but couldn't find him. So she agrees to this walk with Harry because he's very insistent that she go out on a walk with him. And she's like, fine, whatever, I'll go on this walk. And on the walk, he tells her that he never planned to propose to Millicent and that he loves Genevieve. And he really wants to know if she loves him and will she marry him. And he asks, he's like, do you love me? And she's like, yes, I, I do love you. Because she ought to love him, right? She was heartbroken just a couple weeks ago when he said he was going to propose to Millicent. But it's 
it's not quite registering with Genevieve. She's kind of in shock because she she wants to say yes, and this is what she wanted, but it's not as joyful as she thought it was going to be. So then what was really shocking was that they kiss, and Harry's kiss was good, but it didn't electrify her down to her toes like a certain Duke's kiss did. So... (sighs) But now she's agreed to marry him, and he's very happy, so they return to the house and announce their news to the family, and everyone's like, that's nice. Well, Harry, like, we're used to you. You've been around for a while. Cool. But then Mrs. Eversee says there's something for Genevieve in the parlor. And what they see is a wrapped painting, and the Duke has sent over Titian's Venus Urbino portrait from Rosemont with a note for Genevieve wishing her felicitations on her nuptials. And after seeing this note, Genevieve asks Harry what prompted him to ask her to marry him on today of all days, and he tells her about the card game and how he won Rosemont from the Duke. And he actually reached over because the Duke folded, so he didn't actually show his cards. And Harry actually looked at the hand to see what the Duke had, and it turned out that the Duke had the better hand. So he folded, even though he'd actually won. So Harry was like, the, the Duke has a heart after all. He's not heartless. He's actually a good guy. And Genevieve absorbs what Harry says, and she thinks about the Duke. And then she exclaims, that bastard, and goes running out of the house. (laughs) And everyone's pretty confused. Yes. So she makes her way to Rosemont and finds the Duke in his office signing the paperwork to give it to Harry. And Genevieve greets him with another, you bastard. And Alex is really hesitant at first, like he's happy to see her. But he's very hesitant, and he admits that he loves her. And doesn't she love him? But Genevieve says she's engaged to Harry, because he proposed to her this morning, and she accepted, because that was the plan. And the Duke says, then what a pity it is you love only me, he retorted. Silence was absolute. They stared at each other, astonished to hear that word for perhaps the first time between them. And then wary, she inhaled and sighed out the breath and closed her eyes. Bastard, she murmured. This time it sounded very like, I love you. So after calling him a bastard one more time, (laughs) as above, she admits that she loves him and it prompts him to give her a proper proposal. But there's one rule and she has to cut Harry loose first. (laughs) Fair. I'll agree. That's fair. And the Duke and Genevieve agree that Harry does get to keep Rosemont. Yes. I mean, he won it in a card game and the Duke was willing to give it up. So it's not like he needs it. He's got plenty of other estates. So the Duke and Genevieve get married. And Alex tells Ian that he's safe from his revenge thanks to Genevieve. And Ian later is telling Colin that, see... I helped. I did the man a favor. I found him the right wife. Thank God he didn't marry that lady Abigail. (laughs) Right? And so then, for the first time in our Penny Royal Green series history, 
There's an epilogue. There was an epilogue, which I kind of skimmed over because that's basically what's in the epilogue is they get married and they're happy and they're yes. in love and they live happily ever after. And the family's like, yay. The mom's like, I knew you should have married him. Like, you're good enough to be a duchess. <laughs> yes. So all along, her mom thought a little bit more of her than it seemed, which is a nice little uh, bow on on it at the end. But yes, the epilogue doesn't go too far forward into their life. There's not three children and, you know, uh, a new bill overturning, you know, the Women's Property Act or something in <laughs> Parliament. I know that's like 50 years later, but regardless, or 70, 80 years later, I think I actually... But regardless, they live happily ever after, and we still have lots to talk about. So shall we adjourn to the parlor? We shall. So today we have a book recommendation from me. <laughs> um, so normally, you know, we, we'd like to have a listener recommendation, but this kind of came into my sphere of reference in an interesting way. So the book that I'm recommending to you all today is one that I have not yet read, uh, but it is called The Demon Duke, and it's from the Put Up Your Duke series by Margaret Locke. And the main character who ascends to the dukedom has kind of been hidden away by his father because his father failed to beat the Tourette's syndrome out of him. Ooh, interesting. And I, so I actually got to meet Margaret Locke at Historical Romance Retreat. They had a book fair with an author signing, and I met her, and we were talking about uh, her books, and this was one she mentioned. And the reason that she wrote this book is because she has a son with Tourette's. And at uh, I'm I'm paraphrasing the story because it's been a bit of time, so I'm sorry if I'm getting some of the details wrong. But one of the things that she said to me that stuck with me was basically that at, at some point, her son is still fairly young, I believe, but at some point he said something to her like, well, no one's going to fall in love with me or something to that tune. So she felt really compelled to write a book where a character like him got to fall in love. So... I just thought that that was such a beautiful story. And I think also there's really another layer to something when a person writes about something that they have a personal experience with. I think we even touched upon it very you know, kind of a different level, but with the way Evie Dunmore wrote about horses, just because she personally had experience doing it, mm-hmm. you, you've got a little bit of, of, of a different perspective coming to it. So it's in my TBR pile, and I really want to read it, and I just didn't want to not talk about it anymore. And not only not only does this book have such an inspirational kind of history to why it was written, but also 20% of the profits from each sale of the book are donated to the Tourette's Association of America. So you're not only doing something, you know, good for yourself by reading an awesome romance, but you are doing something good for people affected by that syndrome. So anyhow, I just think it's really interesting. I look forward to reading it. Again, that is The Demon Duke from the Put Up Your Duke series by Margaret Locke. I'll have to add that to my TBR pile. And we'll have a link for that in the show notes as well. So if you are ready to click buy, it will be there for you. So something else fun to read that we'd like to recommend to you guys is Historical Romance Magazine. Yes. So Historical Romance 
magazine is a quarterly magazine featuring articles, columns by literary expert, author interviews, historical romance book reviews, and they even have a short story in every issue. And it is strictly based on historical romance. It does give readers all the things they want. Inspirational, spicy. It's really a celebration of what we all love about the genre. And we've talked about it before, so if you haven't yet grabbed your free copy of the digital premiere issue, it's still available for free, like we said, at historicalromancemagazine.com. I feel like we are all historical romance people here, so you should definitely take a look. It's free. And if you're a fan, as we are, then maybe you'd be interested in signing up for a print copy. So if you prefer to have something like this in your hands. They are looking to get 100 subscribers by December 25th in order to go to print. So you've got plenty of time to still get on over there and become a subscriber. Absolutely. So yeah, check them out. The first issue has exclusive interviews with Eloisa James and coming up, Beverly Jenkins. And Lauren of the American Duchess Company will be in the next issue. So if you haven't already, go ahead, check them out. And if you want to see the next issue in print, get over there before December 25th. And that is historicalromancemagazine.com one more time. And we will link to them in our show notes. Yes. And if you love what we're making, you can take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. That way we can keep making this great podcast and people can find us. And you can also find us at frolic.media slash podcast, as well as a bunch of other romance-themed podcasts. Yeah, we're in pretty good company at the Frolic Podcast Network, and we're adding new podcasts to the network all the time. So since we spoke to you last, we've already got some new ones, one of which is Boobies and Newbies, which is what I guested on a few weeks ago and what Kelsey and I are going to be guesting on early December. So watch your feeds for more information on that. And there's other podcasts. So if you don't want to just listen to romance novel podcasts, I mean, like I like to diversify, you like to diversify, you know, we're well-rounded people here. So if you're looking for something else, um, they've also got the Cutaways podcast where they discuss rom-com movies. And they've also got a new one called Couples Talking Couples where they discuss couples <laughs> from literature and film. They recently did one on all the couples within Harry Potter Ooh, and that was pretty cool. I gotta listen to that. Yeah. I know. So there's a lots of content for you to consume. So head over to frolic.media slash podcasts to check us out. Uh, yes. Yeah, so go ahead and check them out. And if you didn't know already, we we talk about a lot of books on our podcast here. Obviously, that's the whole purpose. But you, <laughs> but in our show notes, you can actually find the link to buy all the books we discuss. And if you haven't bought them already, buying them from the link gives us a little money, which helps support making our show. So if you yeah. haven't bought them already, consider using our link. Although if you prefer to go to your independent bookseller, we're not against that either. No, we're really like, we totally get that. But if you do want to support us and you are looking to buy the book, digitally or similar. We do include links, like we said, and we'll get a few pennies. The author gets some pennies. Everybody is happy because there is more romance in the world. Yes. And if you have anything you'd like to share with us, a, a book you would like us to share in the parlor, please let us know at romancepod at gmail.com. 
You can also find us on social media. We're on Instagram at T and Strumpets. T is in Tom and is in Nancy Strumpets. We are at Facebook, Facebook slash T and Strumpets, similar to Instagram. And on YouTube, you can search T and Strumpets and you will find our episodes. Oh, and we're also on Twitter. Yeah. I don't know how Twitter got left off there, but we're there too. I'm typing and it you- now. <laughs> oh, there goes the Google Doc. I see it. I see it. But if you also really want to be in the know, then go ahead and sign up for email notifications on our website. Our website is romancepod.com, and there you can find episodes, more information about us, and other resources. So take a look. Zoe, tell me your general thoughts, because I know what mine are. So I really liked this book. It's like such a little delight. Um, I think that the plot is is actually pretty simple. It's not too – there's not like a lot of – kind of, for lack of a better word, like scenes. It's not like there's just, it doesn't feel frantic. It feels very kind of natural. And the attraction between the characters is so high. There's a lot of tension. It's just really great. Um, You know, you kind of think the book is going to do one thing, as I mentioned in the beginning, and then Julianne Long does her usual magic of kind of flipping it around and, and, and doing something slightly different. So I just really appreciated that. And I really believed in the Duke and Genevieve. They bring out the best in each other. And and I just really liked it. I love this book. This is probably my third rereading of it, which is big for me because I don't reread books. Really? Yeah, I don't. I'm just making you reread all these books for this podcast. I know you really are, which is great because I'm reliving memories and it's excellent because I don't normally reread books. I'm very notorious for not rereading books, even when I love them. There's very few books I've picked up again. But picking this one up again in this series, this is one of the ones I think about. If I think about this series, I almost always gravitate towards this book. Yeah. There's just something about it. Like, yes, it's simple, but it's so well thought out. The characters simple, are simple. Simple isn't a bad no, no, thing no. for this book at all. I feel like simple is a, is is a is part of the praise about it. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't have to do anything difficult to be fantastic. No, and that's and that's I think the beauty of it is it's just it's warm and comforting, and it's not crazy. I don't have to keep up with ten thousand plot points. I don't have mm-hmm. to like sit there and yell at the book and be like, when are you going to reveal your secret? Because they just lay their cards on the table pretty early on, you know? Yeah. But once again, Kelsey praises open and honest conversation. It's a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. And this is one, if you don't, if you like to listen to our podcast and you don't, and you feel like you've gotten the f- true character of the book from us, you know, doing our synopsis, I highly encourage you to read this book. It's not a long read, you know, it's a full length book, but it goes very quickly. And the dialogue in it is so, it's so good. good. It's so beautiful. The banter between the Duke and Genevieve, the ins and the outs, like it's all so good. And what's really interesting is actually while I was reading it this time around, I noticed that a lot of our first person perspective is actually by the perspective of the Duke. Mm-hmm. So the Duke actually like pulls our plot along a little bit more than Genevieve does, which we've talked about how a lot of times I don't really get a feeling of the hero because it's so focused on the heroine. 
Versus this time, I really felt like I got a good picture of both of them, even though I did majority get the internal thoughts of the Duke. Yeah, I really liked that too, because I feel like the Duke had this maturity to him and Genevieve, who is recognized as being really smart and really, you know, clever and observant and and kind of very strong in her own way was kind of going through her metamorphosis, right, of having these experiences, which you just kind of have to have some of those experiences to process them and then know what that's like. And so by kind of getting the Duke's perspective and seeing Genevieve kind of flutter about a little bit uncertainly, it was it was really cool and and poignant. And so I feel like the Duke really did kind of ground the story and pull it along. And I I loved that. No, I think it's brilliant. I think it's great too because, you know, they they really mention the age difference as it's this huge gap. He's so ancient compared to her. But I think in reality, it really, it allowed Genevieve to be free because he knows what it's like to be young and he has his years of experience and he's seeing her grapple with things that young people grapple with and he doesn't fault her for them. Mm-hmm. He allows her to have her metamorphosis, whereas like a Harry wouldn't understand. No. He'd be like, what have you done with the Genevieve I know? And she would say, this is who I've always been. Versus the Duke's like, there's more to you. Show me more. And she's learning how to show that to another person and be open and honest about who she is all the way down and how deep her passions run because she's an Eversee at heart. And she does have passions, but she always felt like someone needed to be the rational member of the family. Yeah, I, I just think there were so many good choices in this book. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like so many good writing choices, plot choices, stylistic choices. Um, it's just like, it was real good. It was really good. All right, Zoe, what would you rate our hero? So I would, so it's really hard. I'm like trying to think of like what I use to rate them. And I, I've got to be consistent, right? Like, so part of the rating is character choices part of the rating is you know probably appeal and and I think part of that is the appeal of like how much do I love this hero Mm -hmm. and I really like this hero he's fantastic but I don't I don't like yearn for him (laughs) the way that I have yearned for other heroes so I think he's I think he's a a nine for me okay like he's not very high it's very high. He can't be lower. He can't be lower because he's so good, but he's not like a perfect 10 for me just because there's just something about him that isn't he like I didn't remember his name, for okay. example. I didn't remember who he was the Duke of or what he was the Duke of before reading this book. Mm-hmm. And I've read this at least twice, if not three times. This might have been my third read of it as well. But I I couldn't remember for the life of me. So there's just something about it that doesn't stick with me and doesn't make it a perfect 10 for me. What about you? He's a 10 for me. <laughs> I and I don't begrudge you that at all. I think preference no, definitely weighs into these decisions. I don't know what it is because we talked about this with Violet's book with Captain Asher Flint. For you he's a 10. Yes. And but for me he was close but he wasn't quite there. For me the yeah. Duke's there. But there's just something I think I just like his maturity and everything. Like he doesn't give in to childish like poutiness. He's a mature man who understands himself and he understands his feelings and he understands his wants in life. And for me, that's very attractive. 
For sure. But he also doesn't put Genevieve across his knee and chastise her. No, ever. he so never it's a does. Very attract, it's a very attractive maturity. Yes. And he encourages her to find herself. Like, he's not like, I love you, so you need to love me and we need to make this happen. He's like, I want this to happen. Mm-hmm. If we continue this relationship, this is how this relationship's going to go. You need to understand that and then you can make your choice. But it's not like My Fair Lady or Gigi where it's like this weird, you know, man kind of, uh, No, he's not her you know, teacher. schooling the woman. No, yeah. he's not her teacher. He's not her mentor. He's literally a man who's attracted to her and shows his attraction and encourages her to figure out what she wants. And if she's equally as attracted to him, then they should go for it. Yes. So what about Genevieve? Where does she rank for you? She's a 10 for me, too. I love her. I thought that might be the case. I I just, I love her. She's smart and she's witty and she's clever, but not annoyingly clever. Yes. And she's honest. And she's like, I want to be rational. I'm trying to keep a level head on my shoulder. But sometimes I don't want to be rational. And sometimes I want to exclaim things, but I don't know how to express that. And here's this man who showed up and I'm really not interested in him, but there's something about him that makes me feel more alive, who makes me feel more like me. Yeah. And she she's not obvious. Do you know what I mean? We've we've met a lot of the people in these books. We've really never met Genevieve up until this point. So she's really this dark horse and she's such a delightful surprise. And so I also, like, as a reader coming into this, you have zero expectations, and she just blows anything that you could have conceived out of the water. Mm-hmm. She's great. But she's also a nine for me. Like, she's totally deserving of of fantastic score, but she's not a Violet to me. I think Violet, that's like, fair. resonates closer with me. And so that's where I get that extra perfect 10. Yeah. But Genevieve is is pretty fantastic. I mean, for a woman of 20. Oh, God, yes. For someone of 20, like, even when she has her childish things, like, she doesn't need him to talk her down. She talks herself down. Mm-hmm. She's like, this is silly. This is childish. Like, I'm moving on. I don't want to be like my siblings and all their, like, rash behavior. Like, I'm I'm the grounded one. Yeah. Well, we've already said a lot of quotes from this book, but do you have a favorite or two to share with the class. I have two because I right. couldn't pick because they're both really good. So the first one is right at the beginning when Harry's told Genevieve that he's planning to propose to Millicent and she's just devastated and they're coming back to the house. Up ahead, a tiny human figure was walking toward them. A moment later, she realized it was her sister, Olivia. And for one wildly disorienting second, she recalled that One's loved ones purportedly greet the freshly dead at the gates of heaven. Perhaps when one's heart was irrevocably broken, one is welcomed into the land of the heartbroken by others who share the condition. Because they talk about Olivia's heartbreak with Lion. And, huh. Okay, that was a very serious one, but I just, I just thought it was very poetic. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other one's just funny because Genevieve's like starting to break out of her shell and everyone's a bit surprised. Because um, Mrs. Eversey says, I shouldn't like our home to be the place where all the neighbors from miles around lose their inheritances. Wives and mothers will descend upon us with pitchforks and flaming torches. 
<laughs> Olivia will simply stand up and give a speech about abolition and frighten them all away. Genevieve Marie Eversee! Her mother was shocked. And she was difficult to shock. Oh my. <laughs> but I love it because Genevieve does have these glib responses to things, but she just like keeps it all in check. And it's just hilarious because she further knows that no one talked about Olivia's causes. It was just something that they endured. But it's funny because she's literally being like, all these women are going to hate us because of all the gambling that's happening here. And Genevieve's like, Olivia will talk them down. Don't worry. <laughs> She'll bore them all. It's fine. <laughs> That's so good. There, I, I have such a hard time picking a quote to share with the class today. We've shared so many of my favorites already. I had so many highlights in this book. I highlighted so many things. When I was looking for a favorite quote, I was really stuck. So I have so many also that I literally highlighted as brilliant. Like I have like four or five things that I wrote brilliant about. And then I have a bunch that I just wrote ha ha ha. And this one I wrote ha 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 in all caps. And we we did talk about this in the beginning, but we didn't read it. So this is Ian exiting from Abigail's window as the Duke holds him at gunpoint and Ian is naked. So him. the Duke and Abigail silently watched Ian squeeze himself out. It wasn't at all pretty, involving bending and contorting and the exposing of places Moncrief deeply regretted seeing even by lamplight. At last came what amounted to watching a moonset as his white hindquarters vanished. And then Ian shinnied back out onto the once inviting, now perfidious branch. Anyhow, uh, hopefully I've been able to cut that into something uh, that is a real passage, but uh, there was a lot of giggling involved. Oh, gosh, there are just so many good things. There are so many good scenes. But it was like little things that I really liked, and I just really want to highlight this. It's like Julianne Long has some really incredible dialogue and prose, and we've talked about it a lot. And she just is so relatable in so many places. And at some point, mm -hmm. they, they're having just a like normal conversation to develop their relationship. And she's talking about her hair. Because That's a he good sees one. That's a good one. I had that one highlighted, too. Because she has diamonds in her hair. And so... He, he ends up saying, you have stars in your hair, and she has absolutely no way to respond to that. And the thing that I love is that then she kind of, her, her response to it is, it won't curl, she muttered finally. I wish it would. And he asks, why would you want it to curl? He was genuinely baffled. Genevieve paused, surprised by the question. Primarily because it won't curl, I suppose. She looked just as surprised by her answer and gave a little laugh enjoying the absurdity of it. I love that because it's so true. We need to talk about our steaminess rating. We sure do. And that steaminess rating was piping hot. Fire! It was like scalding. Like, like how... You, gotta, you don't have to blow on it a few times. You literally just have to let it sit for a minute. Yes, and then once it does sit, oh, you're going to enjoy it because yes. they just have so much chemistry. It was so good. They do, and it's oh, so wonderful. Oh, yeah. And so I love this book. I love I this book so much. I'm glad you really liked it too because this for me was like when you really loved Violet's book and I knew yeah. you loved Violet's book and I loved Violet's book too, but I don't think I loved it quite as much as you did versus like this book I loved probably – 
obviously as much as you liked Violet's book. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I love this book so much. And rereading it again, I was like, nope, I still really love this book. This book is fantastic. And I was just hoping that was your reaction too, which is fine that you didn't like quite as much as you liked Violet's book, but that's okay because it's close. Yeah, I think that like, you know, like I said, a lot of the things that we see in characters kind of give it that that je ne sais quoi, you know, to make it be a perfect 10 for us. And so do I think that this book needed anything that I can really explain tangibly? No, it's a fantastic book. But was it a perfect 10 for me? No, but it's very close. That's okay. Something about it was just like, Everything I want. It's, it's saying to you. And like it's saying, exactly, it's saying to me. Like the characters saying to me, the plot saying to me. I loved every aspect about this book. I love the dialogue. I love the witty. I love the tormenting of Ian. I loved it. Yes. <laughs> it's so good. So our encounter counter, were we at three? Three. Three like solid, solid encounters. Three solid encounters. Love it. Yes. And what did you think about our feminist recap? You know, I kind of wanted to lean to supporter Mm -hmm. simply because we had a very strong heroine. We had a hero who never tried to dismiss her, who always listened to her ideas, who was very much like, I want you to come out of your shell. Like, I want to support you. And so for that reason, I feel it's in the supporter category. However, you know, we did just only get discussions between, like, the Duke and Genevieve. So it's, like, Alex and Genevieve, Alex and Genevieve. And then there was, like, you know, they're focusing around another man. So maybe it's more neutral. Like, it's definitely not an offender. It's definitely not an offender. For sure. I I would say, I would say supporter. I mean, it's not like we saw a ton of healthy female relationships. You know, her relationship with Olivia, Olivia is just kind of like a stick in the mud. Like she doesn't have a lot to her. She's heartbroken, I guess. Um, Her mom is kind of uh, a minor character. You don't get a ton about her mom. Um, And her friend Millicent is very much a character of kind of an airhead. We didn't even get to all of Millicent's drawings of kittens and squirrels, but (laughs) (laughs) angry Um, swans. But I think what we talked about earlier about how the Duke didn't take advantage of Genevieve's naivety. And he instead was like, I, I know that this could turn bad and, so I'm going to kind of tell you it's it has to be one way or the other, and you have to decide where you're at with that. I think like giving her the power of that choice and not making mm-hmm. her feel like she kind of not tricking her into it is definitely more of a feminist thing there. Um, there's also a little quote that I want to read that I feel like kind of is a supporter. So it's um, basically that Genevieve like kind of, she makes the decision to have sex with him. She does not think she's going to marry him. She thinks at this point that she is going to marry Harry and she's fine with having an affair with him. So it reads, The soreness between her legs was a delicious reminder of the wildness, and try as she might, she thought she should at least try. She could not regret it. Or feel guilty about it. She'd done it for herself. She had not been seduced so much as she's participated in a new world of pleasure. 
So anyhow, I think like those sort of things where it's like, you know, there isn't the scene where she feels guilty at all. There's never any like I did something wrong. It's more like I have grown as a person. I've made choices for myself that I love uh, and I'm excited about them. And so I I think it's definitely a supporter. Excellent. Yeah. But that's I think that's why I really liked the Duke, though, is because he wasn't ever trying to be like, I'm the older man. I know better. He was like, I have my experience and this is where I know things are going to go, like based off my experience. Like you need to understand that. But now you need to make your choices because I've made my choices and I know where my choices are going to lead me. But where are your choices going to lead you? Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it was definitely a supporter. But that's why he's a 10 for me. (laughs) So speaking of ratings, then we've got one last rating. And Kelsey, can you surprise us all with what you would rate this book? My perfect 10, because I love this book (laughs) so much. (laughs) I am so glad to hear it. Um, Can you guess what I'm going to rate this book? Is it a nine? It's a nine. (laughs) Yes, I think that there's so much good about it, but I don't have the same personal connection that you do, for example, for whatever reason. I think this book is fantastic. It's a great book. And everyone listening, if you haven't read it, pick it up. Do yourself a favor, a little bit of self-care, just read this book. It's lovely. And I think for me, you know, and you talk about with, Violet's book, you know, she's like, I want to explore the world and like see new places and I'm adventurous and I'm those things too. But for me, I feel like in my life, it's always been about like the personal journey. It's like knowing who I was on the inside and to my friends and who and like learning how to express that and express my wants and like my ideas and who I truly am to my partner. And Feeling accepted in those ways, you know, feeling having a partner who like even reading this more, it's even more powerful now that I've read it. Like my my husband is someone who lifts me up like that's who I knew he was going to be a true partner for me because he he lifts me up like he doesn't. We have our arguments, we have our fights, but in the end, he lifts me up and he wants me to be the best person I can be. And he wants me to fulfill all my dreams. And that's what I love. And that's why I love him is because he's someone who I can support him and he can support me. Like, mm-hmm. it's very much be who you are. Don't be afraid to be who you are. Don't be afraid to show me who you are. And that's something I've really learned to appreciate because I have felt like I've stifled parts of myself and then had to refine myself in life. And so for me, anytime where a heroine can just be herself and the hero lifts her up and is like, this is who you are. Like, I want to see all of you. And she's, you know, embraces that. That for me is heartwarming. I just, Uh I just love it. Well, and I think that he does, it's not like he just says, I want to see all of you. He, he sees all of her in, in areas where other people don't see her. You know, mm-hmm. he recognizes so many things about her personality. And I think that when you do find someone who can do that for you as a person in real life, it's pretty delightful. Mm-hmm. And it's really freeing, too. So yeah. I, I agree. And I think that's lovely. I really think it's a lovely sentiment. So... I am so glad we reread this one, and it's been a lovely time in Penny Royal, but 
we are not returning to Penny Royal next week, but we are going somewhere familiar. Yes, we are. So next week, we are going to be reading the third Bridgerton novel, which is Benedict's book, which Mm -hmm. is an offer from a gentleman. Yeah, Julia Quinn, here we come. This is Bridgerton's number three. Can't wait. Uh, This is the one that Kelsey doesn't remember anything about. It's a Cinderella story. That's all I got. There's a lot of those. I remember loving it. I am also thinking that potentially there might be like a little troubling theme, but I'm like, am I misremembering or like mixing some of the books? But yeah, no, I'm just really excited to dive back into it and remember it because I do have very fond memories of this one, but not very clear memories. (laughs) So, And have you been looking at the sneak peek pictures that have been coming from the Bridgerton series oh with specifically God. Simon and Lady Danbury because oh. <laughs> there is lots of excitement. So join us next week as we get back to our Bridgertons and read An Offer from a Gentleman by Julia Quinn. And may all your ever afters end happily. Tea and Strumpets is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Is it Veronese? 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 Oh, dear. <laughs> Why do we always fall in this I trap? need to Google that really quick. <laughs> Hang on. Google. Google. I think people must be tired by now of hearing bloopers of us being like, is it this? Or is it is it that? this? Um, I don't know how to pronounce this. anything. I just googled google.com. <laughs> this is the best part. <laughs> Wine pronounce Veronese. Veronese. Maybe you just have to say Veronese. it like okay. Botticelli. I'm listening. <laughs> how to pronounce? Okay, hang on. Listening. Listening. Play. It's Veronese. All right. You just have to say it right. Like you're Italian. Veronese. Okay. Veronese. All right. Pay this membership. (laughs) Worth it. So fun. I never thought uh, eight-year-old me sitting at the end of the Monet exhibit, so angry that my mother was not done yet and not understanding what she was doing, would never have thought that I would have talked for about 20 minutes about art. <laughs> oh, it's great. My mom used to always be like, let's go to a museum this weekend. And I'd be like, no, let's not. And now it's what I do. And I tell my mom all about the museums I went to and what exhibits are currently out in San Francisco and which she should go see. <laughs> so fun. Um, Growing up is great. So cheers to that. And maybe she'll find a ghost (laughs) along the way. A ghost who looks like a very real Duke of Falconbridge. (laughs) I mean, if I saw a ghost that looked like the Duke of Falconbridge, I'd try to go find out more too. (laughs) I mean, tall, dark hair, dark eyes, who wouldn't? Oh, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. Dark hair, hazel eyes, who wouldn't? You remember that his eyes were hazel? It was a big point in the book because she couldn't tell how, what color his eyes were. And then she decides on hazel, but then later on she talks about green. And I really don't like it when the facts don't match up. 
<laughs> Fair enough. Okay, sorry. I just read a different book, and there were some eyes in that book too. Anyhow, you know how <laughs> eyes are in books. Okay, yeah. this is all being cut out. So you know what? I will say they didn't mention this. We're talking about eyes. They did not mention smell at all. I thought there was one time, but maybe one on. time, but it wasn't a big factor like it is in all yes. the other books. Oh, no one's, so true. No one's sniffing out her from underneath the table because of her scent. <laughs> so true. So true. Okay, so. She finds continue. We're only yes. halfway through. I know. God. At last came what amounted to watching a moonset as his white. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I can't get through it. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> At last. <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. Okay. At last came what amounted to watching a moonset as his white hindquarters vanished. <laughs> And then, <laughs> so I'm so sorry. Um, and then Ian shinnied back out onto the once inviting, now perfidious branch. Anyhow, uh, hopefully, I've been able to cut that into something.